You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, listeners, Kevin and I need your help. Yes, we need your help. Please, please, please. We need your stars. We need your reviews, you guys, on iTunes so we can start to climb those iTunes rating charts. It's simple. Open iTunes, click on the iTunes store, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews. Under the Customer Reviews, click Write a Review. Then let us know what you think from one to five stars. If you need some help, help, think of one star being Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the road company of the last five years, and five stars being free front row tickets to Hamilton. <laughs> Although, when you think about it, I actually would give five stars to the road company of Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the last five years, because I think that would be uh, awesome. I would love to hear, can I hear moving too fast as Paul? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the one I really want. She's the chick's the goddess. <laughs> and through Erica Schwartz and Danica Weiss. And the Handelman twins. <laughs> so there you go. You can also leave a comment if you like. That's it. That's your reviews. It. Send us Thank your reviews, you. friends. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on our Twitter, at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on the Broadway world. Today's guest has racked up over 50 years in show business and is one of the most beloved actors in the theater community. From No No Nanette, the revival, not the original, <laughs> to Les Mis, <laughs> to Les Mis, to Mary Poppins, our guest has had a lifetime of theatrical riches on stage. And behind the scenes, he is an acclaimed writer of such favorites as Shylock, L'Hotel, Richard Corey, Fanny Hill, and a new one-man show that is gaining a tremendous buzz around the city, Georgie, which is a celebration of the late great character actor... George Rose to tell us what it was like to work with Ruby Keeler and Margaret and Leonard Bernstein, plus how George Rose shaped his life in the theater, here to reveal his secrets from a life on stage and off. Here is the one and only Ed Dixon. First, I have to tell you this from the minute I posted this, all of my friends started writing in saying, Oh, you have to say hello to Kevin and Rob. Oh, that's my favorite show. Oh, I love that. I- <laughs> 
So obviously, so we, our have, parents we found, got to you. <laughs> we found the right audience. Good. Well, it was just a matter of time before we had a chat with you, Ed. I mean, I'm so happy to be now, here. know everybody. We, we are so happy to have you. Now, I, ha- you. I have to tell you something. I'm going to sound so geeky. When I was three years old, one of the first musicals my parents took me to see was The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And all I wanted to be was George Rose. Mm. And my mom made me, out of construction paper, a top hat. <gasps> like the one he wore. And little sideburns like the one he had. <laughs> you were three. So, I was three. There's three. video oh of this. You There's went to see Edwin Drood at three. And the yeah. character you wanted to be right. was the man. <laughs> right, <Yep>. right. Like, <laughs> oh, yep. Rob, bless your parents. Bless, bless my parents. Bless, bless them so you, much. You know Howard McGillan was in that show, yeah, right? Too. You <laughs> could have gone a completely... <laughs> It's fine, lovely, nice, but it was it was really all about George Rose for me. So now I have to oh ask you, how did your friendship with George Rose start? Oh, there was a long drawn out story of how Lehman Engel, who was the king of operetta, yeah. I had done a BMI workshop. The yeah. first big thing that Maury Yeston did was a musical version of Casanova. And I got to play Casanova for BMI. Which is like it, a writing it, workshop a, for writers. Uh, that yeah. Lehman had created yeah. and yeah. ran. And he brought me in for it, and the number killed. Oh. And Lehman came up to me. He didn't come up to me right then. He did, But he called me at home and said, look, I've made a mistake. I've cast the wrong person to play the role of Detlef in a big tour of the student prince that I'm doing, and I want you to be this. But we're leaving almost immediately. Can you do it? I, I was completely broke. <laughs> and this was like, oh. Yeah. yeah. And I, so I go on this tour. And a friend of mine said to me, oh, my God, you know, George Rose is doing that. And I said, who's George Rose? <laughs> and I, because I, I was the wrong kind of geek. You know, I, I, I was just right off the boat from Oklahoma. I didn't know anything. Mm. And um, I go into rehearsal, and George is not there. Because he's doing, I believe it was Sleuth. He was doing double duty with Sleuth. So he arrived even later than I, than I had. And when he walked in, I just went, who the hell are you? And what are you doing? He was so funny. He was so infectious. He, You know, it was a rather tepid revival. But what George was doing was completely unique. I found myself standing in the wings all the time watching his scenes. Oh, wow. Now, I was a kid, and I all I wanted to do was sing high notes. I didn't know that I was going to become a character actor, but I knew that... I had to pay attention to this. And then I started hanging out in his dressing room, which was very dangerous because he wasn't easy. You know, yeah. he, he would be very confronted. Well, well, what do you know about such and such? You know, or, or do you know who such and such? Oh, no, you've said that incorrectly. You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, that's not right. <laughs> and you you never knew when he was going to, like, you know, everything could be placid and then he'd flip on you in a second. But I was fascinated. So the tour continued and he left. And and we, he was replaced by Ray Walston. And, oh, wow. And, yes, oh. and that, that's the first time I found out that being famous is not the same thing as being talented <laughs> you know the show just sank like a Truth. stone with with ray walston i mean it. ray walston in yeah. student prince yeah. is a shocking one yes. but yeah and then george came back <laughs> yes the producers must have been like, please george please and, and so you know I, that was a wonderful thing and then five minutes yeah. later the 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 tour capsized it, 
I, gosh, I, I don't know how much detail. I'll, I'll just go you, on talking. You go. You, know, you can cut it out. <laughs> it, it was There were two tours out at the same time, the Desert Song and the Student Prince. In the and 70s. This is mid-70s. Yes, like. yes. This is 74. <laughs> Great. And, and we were both supposed to come back to Broadway. Mm. Ours was being very successful, and the Desert Song wasn't. Well, the Desert Song came back first, because I think their, their bookings weren't going well on the road. I'm making this up as I'm going along. We were both <laughs> supposed to come to the Winter Garden Theater, and they tanked. They tanked so bad, Lee, that um, we didn't come in. So suddenly we're like in Pittsburgh and we're folding. And then I'm saying goodbye to George for real. I'm like, wow, right. I'll never see anybody like this again. This has been an amazing yeah. uh, anomaly in my life. Then a few weeks later, I'm walking down the street in Greenwich Village in front of Elephant Castle Restaurant, and there he is, walking his two skipper-key dogs. And he says, oh, why don't you come up for some tea? <laughs> so I did. You don't say no, yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, I, this is unbelievable. So he leaves me uh, alone in the living room, and I, I looked around, and I went, this place looks terrible. What the hell? I mean, uh, uh, okay, you live how you like. He's disappeared into the kitchen, and I see the door to the bedroom opening, and I think, oh, he has a roommate? A mountain lion walks into the room. A large mountain lion. Like a wild animal. A wild and <laughs> large. And it walked right toward me, and it butted its nose no. up against my no. knee. I... And he sticks his head out of the kitchen and says, Oh, I see you two have met. <laughs> and then I realize it was a setup. He knew if he left me sitting alone in his apartment that the mountain lion would come out and say, There were two of them. What? There were two mountain lions living in his apartment. How is this possible? <laughs> well, I, how is this legal? I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't legal. Oh my gosh. Most of his life was illegal as it turns yeah. out, you know. Yeah. Wild. Yes, indeed. Mountain. <laughs> then uh, um, we became friends, yeah. friendly, and he invited me to some things and over time we got to know each other and eventually I became the voice teacher of note in the 1980s. I was like coaching everybody. Yeah. I coached almost everyone in a chorus line, mm -hmm. like all except for like one person at one mm -hmm. point. And uh, I coached, I don't know, seven different Cassies. I, co I coached the Cassie from the movie. And um, <laughs> it's very hard to keep a train of thought going here. I get this telephone call from him. Um, you know, I, I've uh, I've been offered a sort of Henry Kissinger role in Alan J. Lerner's new musical dance a little closer. Uh, do you think you could teach me to sing like Hermann Pry? I said, Hermann Pry is one of the greatest singers in the world. Yes, but you do teach, don't you? <laughs> yes. Well, what time should I come? How about two o'clock on Tuesday? <laughs> Good. See you then. Ta-ta. <laughs> So, after years of idolizing him, first uh, in, in The Student Prince and then in a zillion other shows, he's on his way to my house to study with yeah. me. You know? God. A and then he invited me to openings, and then, I mean, then we really got to know each other. Yeah. So eventually he invited me to visit him in the Dominican Republic. Oh, you and, and, and I was like, oh my God, I feel like... Noel Coward has has invited me to Firefly. You know, this, yes. well, this is unbelievable. So I I go down there and he meets me at the 
Because he had a house there or something? He had he bought a house yeah. for 100,000 American right on the ocean. Well, it was a palace. Oh, my you know goodness. I mean? It was a gigantic thing with an, an enclosure and an, an, an encampment. Um, and it that's how it turns out that I met the people who would kill him eventually. I used to have a picture of us all at the circus, which sadly was lost. Um, wow. Uh, I mean, the shock of finding out, well, I'm not going to talk about what I found out, you know, but sure. you know, it, it takes it takes an hour in the play to yeah. set up talking in, about it. In a yeah. nutshell, just if you don't mind us saying for our listeners who may not know how George Rose met his end. Well, he was murdered. Yes. Very violently. Horribly. In the Dominican Republic. That's right. By the fa- family of his adopted son and his adopted son. And for whatever the situation was or was not, it actually was simply about the money. The inheritance. He was yeah. the heir. Yeah. You know, uh, it, there, there is an account by his neighbor that yes. you can find online that I is see that. just mm. heroic. So there's, some people say there was a cover-up. Some people say that yes. you know, there yes. wasn't a proper investigation. It was messy. Either way you look at One it. One of the things I, I, I realized when uh, Richie Ridge suggested that I write this show was that I know things about this that there's there's really not a living person who knows. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Because I was there and because I knew him so well. And he told me a lot of things while I was there before I ran away. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, you know, one of the things I, I said to him before I left was, George, this is not safe. This is not good. This is not safe. And he said, Oh no, dear boy, it's part of the culture. It's perfectly natural here. And I came back to the states, and the phone rang, and have you heard? You know, and but nobody knew what the real story was. It came out in in bits yeah. and pieces, but. To the best of my knowledge, the actual story has never been told. Mm. There are pieces of it in a lot of places and insinuations, but I know. Will that be told in your play? It is in the play. Great. Yeah. It's, if I may say so, devastating. Yeah. 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 Well, well I'm, I, for one, am so happy that you're introducing his amazing career mm. and his amazing talents and amazing legacy to a whole new generation who might not know yeah. who he well, is. Like as I said to one of you a minute ago, he died in 1988. Yeah. So you know, there's that's that's a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I had known him for a very long time then. Well, we cannot wait to see. Do you know when it might be coming to another venue? We we've moved from one venue to another. Until you have been involved in the producing process of an off-Broadway show, you just can't. Three times we've had it lined up and, and for a very specific window because what we want to do is do a limited run in New York and then start touring the country. Fabulous. We want to take it on a, on a tour of regional theaters. Then I've agreed to stay on the road with it for two years, which is what I hope we will do. Like I, I want this to be the next three years of my life. It's currently looking like we really can't go until January. Okay. You know. Okay. Um, Great. Great. So now, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, how did an Oklahoma boy yeah. make yeah. it to New York City? <laughs> <laughs> I well, as anyone who knew me then will tell you, I wasn't an or just an ordinary Oklahoma boy. <laughs> I I was really marching to a different drummer. The first 
album I ever bought uh, when everybody was buying the Beatles was West Side Story. Oh, yeah. Mm. And the second album I ever bought was The Merry Widow, Franz Lehar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what taste? W- with John Reardon, who I ended up playing opposite just a few years later. You know, yeah. the, 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 the vision of it. And the third was, come on, Ed, you can do this, Zinka Milanov, the Bulgarian-Romanian-Croatian soprano who I idolized. <laughs> this was... This was how. Of course. Now, (laughs) I wrote three musicals, book music and lyrics, when I was in Norman High School in Norman, Oklahoma. So you wrote at a young age. You were always writing. I even got people to put them up. I mean, we didn't do full productions, but we did them in my living room and in other people's living rooms. And some of some of them were even performed on pieces of them on assembly. (laughs) Can you imagine (laughs) what they must have thought? In Oklahoma, yes. <laughs> now, were your parents supportive of the arts career? Well, you know, they never, they weren't really paying a lot of attention. <laughs> I, mm. I had a, 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 a will. I don't know where it came from. I was just doing it. That was all. You know, I was always doing it. I came home in the second grade and announced that I was singing on the, the talent show. They didn't even know that I sang. I mean, of course, we all sang in church because we were always in church. Of course. Oh, yeah. But I I just, I did that on my own and I just kept doing things like that. A big family? Do you have a, did you come from a big family? I had an older brother. How does the move happen from Oklahoma to New York City? Uh, I actually, I worked at the Sonic Drive In. Can you imagine delivering burgers and fries and Cokes at a Sonic Drive In? And they still have them. They do. I just just saw an advertisement for one the other day. And, and um, I saved up, like, what was it, $100 or something? Because, you know, money meant something back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I bought a ticket to New York. I, I was, I think I was still in high school. <laughs> I think I was. I think it was sometime it, around 66. I came to New York. Well, we can find out by what was playing. I, I got off, I stayed at the Y. Nothing cost anything. You know, you could get a ticket to a yeah. Broadway show for five dollars. Oh. Yeah. I, I remember seeing, oh, eight dollars for the good seats. Who could ever pay that? You know, <laughs> and, and I put my bag down and I went to the Palace Theater and I saw Sweet Charity with Gwen Verdon. That was Ooh. the first day. Was that your first Broadway show ever? Yes, yes, yes. For, yes wow, yes, yes. what a way to get with introduced. John McMartin. Yes, of course. Who I would end up on stage with in Anything Goes. What forty five years later? What? And that same week, I went to see Joel Gray in the original cabaret. And forty five years later, I would stand next to him on the deck of the ship of Anything Goes and kibitz with him every night during the big tap number. And I'd be like, "Are you guys seeing this? Like, is this can, real? Can you, like, can you see this? Ed, did you ever tell them? <laughs> yes, of course I did. You, you, you've met me. I tell everything." <laughs> <laughs> they were exactly the opposite. John McMartin was like a brain surgeon of comedy. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He didn't want to socialize. The door to his dressing room was closed. The door to Joel's room was open, yeah. and there were cookies. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. I talked to him. I, I went to his dressing room until he would tell me to leave because he had to get dressed. <laughs> but I mean, just the the 
I, when, when I told John McMartin, oh, what a dear, God, what an amazing artist he was. When I told him that I saw him the first day, he said, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that now, happened. So Okay, so Sweet Charity, Cabaret, and this, and this instills your love. Okay, now, I... It gets murky here because I've tried to tell this story and people say, no, that must have been your second trip. I, I believe I saw Angela Lansbury in MAME that first week. Well, it was 1966, week. I think. Yes, I think yeah, that it's yeah. safe to say you were there. Yeah, that makes um, sense. work. Because I I know that I saw Merman in Dolly. Ah. That may have been a couple of years later when I was back. I don't know. It's yeah. in, yeah. my, in my memory, it's all scunched together. Sure. You know? Yeah. Uh, I know that I saw Geraldine Page and Michael Crawford in White Comedy Black Lies that first week. Wow. You know? um, I saw Hallelujah Baby, nice. Le- Leslie Uggams. Oh. oh, my God. I saw I Do, I Do with Mary, Mary Martin, Martin and Robert Preston. Preston. And check this out. When I moved down to see Ethel Merman, I was right next to the Passerelle, and I was going to be looking up her dress when she came around in the Dolly number. Yeah. And a mean old usher came and threw me out. What? Yes. But that did not deter me, because when I was seeing I Do, I Do, I saw an empty seat on the front row. And I moved down, and, you know, the orchestra was behind, so they were right Mm -hmm. there. Mary Martin sat on the edge of the stage closer to me than either of you are to me, which is to say very close, and and sang um, What is a Woman. Oh, wow. My God, wow. And I could see the bridge work in her teeth. (laughs) She made eye contact with me at one point, and I, I, I did not break the gaze but let me tell you it's very hard yeah. as a what was i 18 year old to make eye contact with mary martin while she's performing oh my gosh <laughs> so okay so you're so you're yeah. going from oklahoma to new york you're going on these trips when do you decide that you're actually going to move to new york you're going to make a go of it i finished high school i whew, i let me gather my wits yeah. here I got I w- I started college. I got a full scholarship to the Manhattan School of Music because I won a contest. It was Through Nats, right? Nats, yeah. yeah, the National Association of Teachers of Singing. And when they announced it, I just I I couldn't believe it because I knew what it meant. It meant I had a full ride to the Manhattan School of Music and I was going to New York mm-hmm. and, and it was paid for. And I came here and you know, the only thing I ever was interested in was music and acting and theater. I wasn't interested in it, and I thought that was the whole point. Yeah. So they thought that I should be interested in a lot of other things, like theory and music history, etc. <laughs> and so, so I didn't do well in school. And it, everything that I learned in life, I learned later mm. and on my own. But they asked me to leave. So I started my career. And I got a job at Surflight Summer Theater in uh, Jersey, Long it? Beach Island, New Jersey, yeah. where you could do 10 shows in 11 weeks for $25 a week. Plus, Classic plus, summer style. Plus wow. room and board. Classic. I starred in five of them, and I was in the chorus of the other five, and we did improvisational children's theater in the morning. I couldn't do that today 
for a million dollars. I learned How? Billy Bigelow while I was in the chorus of yeah. Carnival. I totally. mean, you know. Like rehearsing during the day, performing yes. at night. Yes. The like show you just... were last from last I week. Mean, but talk yeah. about training, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like an unbelievable. You and, and you know, I left there and went to Casa Manana and, oh, did, yeah. and did eight shows in 16, 16 weeks. Now I had my equity card. Then I returned there and did another eight shows in 16 weeks. So I'd done 30 musicals and I'd only been in show business for three years. Right. You know. When you were auditioning, did you have a standard audition song, your standard go-to audition song? I think, God Almighty, <laughs> I, I I used on a clear day a lot. I was obsessed with Clear Day and and John Cullum. Of course, I've gotten to meet him numerous times. I never got to meet. Barbara Harris, who's one of the great... I got to see her do Apple Tree. That's one of the things I saw. Yeah. Uh, seeing seeing her live was one of... I'll never forget it. Yeah. I, I got to ask Sheldon Harnick, what 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 was she like? And he yeah. goes, I don't know. I was always in the hotel doing rewrites. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's a writer. <laughs> but I was very attached to the song All the Things You Are. It's been a touchstone for me. Now... Little did I, I, I just didn't understand how stupid that was. This is a very syrupy, very old-fashioned song from many, many years ago by Jerome Kern. It's one of the most beautiful songs in the world, of course. Agreed. But for a young man in the 60s, <laughs> to that to be your go-to song, it's what got me No No Nanette. It's the mm. reason I was, I did it for Buster Davis, who, he was casting a musical version of Bus Stop with Paula Wayne. And... Uh, in those days, musical directors had a lot of power, and he had a lot of power. He was very famous. And he, I sang All the Things You Are, and I did this big portamento at the end. All the things you are are mine. And he's like, where did you learn to do that? Which I thought was a great compliment. Of course, he was like, what are you, from Mars? Yeah, right. <laughs> And he remembered it, and he asked me to, to be in this show. He just hired me. And then the show lost its funding. And he called me up and said, we've lost our funding. So I took off. To, I didn't have anything to do, so I went back to Casa Manana. And I was rehearsing, and th there used to be this old wooden phone booth in the corner. There. I was so sad the last time I was back <laughs> that it's gone. And it was, you know, with the sliding oh, yeah. the door. And uh, the phone rang. I think it was Betty Buckley uh, answered the phone. Uh, I worked with her before she ever came to yeah, New York. Yeah. You know, we, we did your own thing. That so. terrible <laughs> adaptation of Twelfth Night. You know, and <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and, and she said, "Ed, it's for you." And I pick up the phone. I hear, "Hi, honey, want to do a Broadway show?" <laughs> it was Buster Davis. <laughs> he said, "Do you tap dance?" I said, "All my life, <laughs> I'd never even." touched a tap shoe. So I immediately grabbed some of the guys from the ensemble and said, can you teach me a couple of steps? <laughs> and, and I had an old Volkswagen bus in those days, and I got in it and started driving cross-country to make my, my Broadway debut, all the time thinking... I'm going to get there and this is going to be a joke or he's going to like, you know, put his hand on my knee or something, you know. Yeah. And and uh, no, I walked in, it was all good to go and I was in no 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 net and off we went. Now, did I see on your Facebook yesterday you celebrated the 46th <laughs> anniversary of the first day of rehearsal? Wild. Wow. Yeah. Is that Isn't that fucking amazing? We we had a 40th anniversary recently yeah uh, and recently six years ago and 
that it, I think it's the only one I ever went to, and it was just so amazing yeah. to think it was forty years. No, it's <laughs> and now you're working with so many great legends, mm. and there's a wonder. Now, I I, I want to ask you about this. There's a book that we've talked about with Lonnie Ackerman, the making uh-huh. of No No Nanette. Uh, is the book accurate or not? I didn't think it was because you know he wasn't in the company. He interviewed people, but he had a point of view, and he was putting forth his point of view. Mm. I covered the one of the main reasons I wrote my book was because I wanted to tell those Nanette stories. They're fucking amazing. I mean, if you just took the chapters from No No Nanette, that's a book right oh, there, yeah. in my opinion. Mm. Absolutely. Know? Tell us who was in your cast of No No Nanette for those of you who might not know. Well, Ruby Keeler, oh my God. You know, things weren't the same back then as they are now. We didn't all have videos. We didn't all have YouTube. So the things from the past, you know, the the shows that Ruby Keeler did, we'd all seen them like once, maybe twice, right. when they just happened to show up on television. Yeah. But we, you didn't have the, the constant availability to it. I didn't really know who Patsy Kelly was. Mm-hmm. I had I knew who Helen Gallagher was because I'd seen her in Sweet Charity the day I arrived in New York. Right. You know? uh, I didn't really know who Bobby Van was, and I really didn't know who Patsy Kelly was. Patsy Kelly was in a lot of of Ruby's movies, and they were friends. They grew up together in, in what what would be the word for it? I believe it, it was. Irish town, Brooklyn, uh, I mm. believe. I don't want to be saying something that's not true, but I, I, I think that's what the story was. And Ruby used to, t- she, she danced in a very odd manner. It was all elbows and knees. And when people would, a- it wasn't feminine. And when people asked her what the, why she had that style, she said, I learned in the street. We hammered uh, pop bottles on, on our shoes. And the only teachers were men. And they taught me to, to dance like this, and she danced in that extremely aggressive, masculine way. But it, when she, she had been in retirement for thirty years, she, when she was young, she was married to Al Jolson. Mm-hmm. I think I can say without offending any living family members that it was a very unhappy marriage. No one ever mentioned Al Jolson around Ruby, and, and you know I was. I look back on these things. I was so dumb. I didn't know to ask questions. I didn't understand the historical nature of the... Busby Berkeley was there, you know. Busby Berkeley, who invented the overhead shot, he was there. But, you know, he was in his 80s. So to me, at 20, he was just some old man. And I didn't want him talking to me. And he wasn't interested in talking to me anyway. But Irving Caesar was there, who wrote Tea for Two with Vincent Humans. And, you know, he always had a cigar in his mouth. He wanted nothing but to tell theater stories. Well, he smelled. He smelled of cigar smoke. I just wanted to get away from yeah. him all the time. Years later, I look back, I went, he knew Irving Berlin. Yeah. I, I could have asked him anything. Of course, he knew Vincent Humans. Yeah. <laughs> he knew Jerome Kern. I, and... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But I didn't know, because I was young and dumb, like you do. After No No Nanette, how does mass come into play? Because it is... An incredible Talk about epic. Yeah. This and, was and Bernstein. So yeah. unlikely. I was a chorus boy in the chorus of No No Nanette in my first show on Broadway. And some I had an agent, Beverly Anderson, and she got me an audition for Leonard Bernstein's Mass. Because in those days you could actually go in and audition for things. Mm. Everything wasn't pre-edited. Yeah. And so I go in and I had a lot of different styles of singing at my disposal, and they were looking for people who could do a lot of different styles. So I ended up doing leader and opera and operetta and musicals. The thing that I was missing was pop, which was non-existent for me. So I go in, and I'm called back. And I'm like, my God, yeah. I'm called back. And I walk in... And it's at no, the big NOLA Studios on 57th Street, not the one that's now on 54th Street, the old one, which had a stage. So I walk up on stage with this big sheath of music because they told me to bring everything. And there is Alvin Ailey, Oliver Smith, Leonard Bernstein, and some very young, cute man snuggled up next to uh, Bernstein. And I'm like, Bernstein? brought his trick to my audition? Seriously? <laughs> and I go up and I sing leader and I sing opera and I, I think I sang, I may have sung All the Things You Are and the guy, the young guy next to Bernstein goes, do you have something contemporary? And I'm like, I can't believe he's addressing me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to Bernstein. And, and, and I, I had done a kind of arrangement of uh, Come Back to Me from Clear Day. Okay. Like what I thought was a jazzy or modern arrangement. Of course it wasn't because I didn't have it in me. And he said, oh, it's not that. Da -na -da -na -na -na. And I'm like, why are you talking to me like this? So I do it. He's very, very unimpressed. And then the audition is over and I walk out and I think, okay, I had my brush with greatness and now it's over. And I went home and threw up. <laughs> And then I go to work, and I'm all crushed. And then a day later, I get a call. You're in it. Oh my You've, God. They've picked you. Yep. And, of course, you know, the guy next to Bernstein was Stephen Schwartz. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so stupid. I'm like, ooh, why is he talking to me? <laughs> well, he, he wrote half of Mass, you right, know. exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. And that was the premiere. I mean, at the Kennedy yes, Center? Yes, it, it, it was the premiere. It, There's a recording it, of it? I mean, it's, Yes, yeah. which we did with Bernstein. Yeah. And, and it was the first thing in the Opera House, and we recorded part of it in, in the Philharmonic Hall there, and it was the first thing in there. And th then we took it to Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and then we took it to the Metropolitan Opera. I mean, I mean, thrilling. I yeah, mean, uh, it was, and it was, everything was so huge. I mean, all the living Kennedys came to the opening night. 
there's a hilarious story about you know the boxes at the Kennedy Center are very low, so you can you know tap yeah. your, tap your neighbor. So Bernstein is here, and Rose Kennedy is here. The thing ends, and he's crying because Bernstein always cried. You know, he kissed everybody and cried on everybody. And so the thing, and the cameras are on them, and the lights are on them, and he leans over to kiss her, and she goes, my makeup. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I love it. Now, what's it like being in a rehearsal room with Leonard Bernstein? It's just but I mean, I got left alone with him in the wings one day, and what the hell do you say? I know. I mean, he he really was a genius. You know, people throw the word genius around a lot, but he really was. And when he would speak, you would feel like someone was explaining something to you that you could never have understood <laughs> in a million years. And there I am alone with him. I don't know what to say. I said some dumb thing to me, and he looked bored with me. I go to the bathroom. Leonard Bernstein comes in and comes to the urinal next to me and starts pissing and talking to me over his shoulder. He's wearing like a $8,000 suit made of suede. Of course. And, and I mean, could I? I couldn't handle any of that. Jeez. Um, yeah, wow. amazing. That, amazing. Okay. Now, you know, we'll take a photo of this so our listeners can see, but uh, Ed has on his wall posters of all the shows that he's been in. Most of these I'm familiar with, except what is uh, King of Schnorr's, <laughs> a madcap musical? Yes, it was. Schnorr, that'd be S-C-H-N-O-R-R-E-R-S. A schnorrer is term, right? a Yiddish term for someone who, by nefarious means, lives off the money of others. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. The, the, the importance <laughs> for me was that... I played a series of parts in it, and one of the parts, Belasco, the fop, was a wonderful part. It was staged by Grover Dale. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. And, and I did a number called I Have Not Lived in Vain, in which I was in love with my clothes. And I opened up my clothes closet, and the clothes came out and danced with me. How fun. And it was so fun. And I, you know, I knew I, a wonderful thing was happening. It was the biggest part I had done in New York. And we opened the Harold Clerman Theater with. Now, not the Harold Clerman that is today. It was a couple of doors down. It, the day before we moved into it, it had been a whorehouse. It was one of those whorehouse buildings on 42nd Street that was reclaimed and turned into a theater. People were literally af- afraid to set their coffee down <laughs> anywhere. Of course, it had been painted and fixed up. but So it got, it got a rave review in the New York Times. So we moved to a Broadway house. So I got to do this amazing part. It was my first big part on Broadway. It was a big, big deal to me. Yeah. That's wonderful, Ed. Yeah. That's, is there a recording of it somewhere? No, but just recently I did uh, one of those things at 54 Below where it, they were celebrating... <laughs> Flop shows, and they're like, we can't believe we have someone from King of Schnorr. Like, who ever thought this day would come <laughs> that you would get to hear this number? So I reconstituted it. Uh, I don't remember how I did it. I think I, I had a recording, and I plunked out the accompaniment and turned it into something. And you can, it's on YouTube. So we'll you post could, it for you our could. listeners. <laughs> we'll totally post it. For. Were you still writing? While you were performing, or did writing go away for a while? For a while. I mean, I was always writing, because a weird thing happened. During No No Nanette, a a dancer came to me 
and said, do you think you could help me with my singing? And I said, well, I'm just making my own way. I don't know. And he goes, I want you to try to help me. So I tried to help this guy. We were all taking Helen Gallagher's class at the day. She taught a marvelous class. She still might be doing it for all I know. It was very uh, successful. An acting class. An act, uh, an act, singing, singing acting. Oh, singing acting. Singing acting. She actually caused me to have such a large breakthrough that I credit her with an, an enormous part of my life uh so this guy got better and he took helen's class and helen said you got better how did you do it and and she he told her so helen started sending me people and she particularly started sending me people who really couldn't sing or who were damaged or who had real problems so i was in my mid-twenties, and suddenly I was teaching 40-, 50-year-old people who had vocal damage, and it turned into a, a big cottage industry and was a huge part of my life. So I was constantly learning music through that and writing arrangements and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So it started this whole ball running. I didn't know that I was going to do it until in 1977... I was doing a Jacques Brel with Ellie Ellsworth, who had done, I believe, 12 different tours of Jacques Brel. Mm -hmm. And I was doing my first one. And we, um, we paused during a break. We were sitting back to back in folding chairs, and she leaned over her shoulder and said, what are we doing doing this show that's been done a million times? Why aren't we doing something new? And I said... Well, let's do it. So I started writing a show for me and her called Identity and Other Crises, which was, a, I, I stole the format of Jacques Brel. I wrote a lot of songs and then tried to, about all kinds of different things and kind of strung. By the time we got around to doing it, she wasn't available and somebody else ended up doing it. I, I, there's, there must be a poster of this somewhere, but somehow I don't have this poster. And somebody produced it. Here's, I had just seen uh, Starting Here, Starting Now, which was at a place called, well, we can look this up, Barbara Ann's. Mm. And I saw it many times. It was out of this world. And Lonnie was in it. Mm -hmm. and, and George Lee Andrews yeah. was in it. You know, And then I ended up writing this Oliver Quaid piece, which was directed and shepherded by Lloyd Batista, who had been the star of King of Schnorrers, and that by that time I went, oh, this this is actually happening. And then came Hotel Broadway, which was at, at the Silver Lining, and George Rose. There, there was a guest spot in Hotel Broadway for so that I could plug in a guest performer. We intended to do a rotational thing, and George Rose said to me, oh, I would like to do that. Oh. So okay. suddenly, George Rose is making a guest appearance in my little off-Broadway <laughs> show, and there is the poster. Oh, my God. I mean, so many. Fanny Hill, Richard Corey. Yeah. So how many shows have you written at this point? Probably Thirty, and you I do think. pretty much most of the time. Am I correct in saying most of the time you do everything, book, music, and lyrics? Yes, I mean, of course, when I did Shylock, I, I it was all taken from Shakespeare text, and um, uh, the, this here's an amazing thing. I, I did a piece called Cather County at Playwrights Horizons, which in which I took five or six different short stories of Willa Cather and wove them mm. together. Well, at that time, it was the home for A. R. Gurney. That, that was his uh, home base at that time. So he came to see it. Actually, 
everybody came to see it. Like every major composer of the day came to see it. It was so heady for me. And um, I'm sitting in my house, and the phone rings, and I pick up. And I go, Hi, this is Pete Gurney. You want to do a musical with me? Uh, he sounded like Buster Davis. Just uh, <laughs> let me try. <laughs> Hi, this is Pete Gurney. You want to do a musical with me? Uh, and, <laughs> and I was like, Yeah. And I thought he meant, oh, we'd sit around his house and pour through ideas. But no, he, an early play of his, Richard Corey, had not been what he considered a success. And he wanted me to do to it what I had done to the Willa Cather stories. Interesting. And now, he did participate, but mostly it was me taking his play and running. And it was so terrifying for me because I hacked it to pieces. It's a very long play, and it went forward and backwards yeah. in time a lot. So I thought, this needs to go in one direction. It doesn't need all these flashbacks. I, I wonder if this is okay. So I started whittling away at it, and I it had way too many characters. He, he he likes to do that thing where everybody plays 10 different characters, sure. so it had like 50 people in it. I thought, I want to get it down to the people it's really about, so I th threw out all these characters, and I, I th threw back all out all the flashbacks, and I have, I don't know, five scenes of it that I want to show to him, and I'm like, oh boy. So I invite him over, and I show it to him, and he goes, that's exactly right. I give you carte blanche. I'm like, Woo! My God. We did it, you know, the, we did it many times. We did it at the O'Neill Festival. We did it at a festival at Lincoln Center. Uh, it, it, it officially premiered at Lyric Stage in Dallas, mm. where it was highly lauded. Uh, I'm missing a whole bunch of places we did it. There's quite a good recording of it. Uh, but it, when all is said and done... It's a suicide musical. You know, Rich, yeah. at, at, at the end, Richard Gorey went home and put a bullet through his head. So it's a hard sell, yeah. even with a famous author like A.R. Gurney attached to it. And I really tried to get it going for a long time, and eventually I just said, no, I, that's not... I, and that's when I got the idea to do... Actually, b both, both Richard Gorey and the Wild Party were up at the O'Neill at the same, there were only two musicals and those were they. And I looked at my musical and I looked at the Wild Party, Andrew Lippas, which was a, about sex and debauchery. And I thought, okay, let's say I've got a million dollars. Am I going to put it in the suicide musical or am I going to put it in the sex musical? Yeah. Which is how I got the idea to do Fanny Hill. And as it turns out, Kristen Chenoweth was in Andrew Lippas' piece. And I was thinking, you know, she's doing somebody else's show, would it be too weird if I asked her at some point to do my show? The next thing I know, my phone is ringing. She goes, hi, Ed, it's Kristen Chenna. Can, can I be in a show with you? I swear to fucking God. Wow. And I, I wrote Fanny Hill for her. Wow. You know, she wasn't famous then. I wrote it really quickly. But by the time I finished Fanny Hill, she was famous and was swept away. <laughs> we actually did do a great big uh, 29 hour reading or something like that for Paper Mill that it seemed they were prepared to do a $2 million production with Kristen Chenoweth. And I was like, my life is made. And they went through their famous oh, yeah. di disaster yeah. financially. And, and that was the end of 
of the, eventually Fanny Hill made its debut at the York Theater with the fabulous Nancy Anderson. Oh, yes. oh wonderful. A- and she got a Drama Desk nomination. And, you know, I got a Drama Desk nomination for Shylock when I was at the York. So, it, you know, it really has been my lucky place. Yeah. Would, would you tell us who else was nominated the year you were nominated <laughs> for your Drama Desk? <laughs> you know... I, I came home from Shylock. It, it, it was a difficult experience. There were some people who really didn't like it, and they didn't like that I had adapted a Shakespeare play into an opera and starred myself in it and gotten it produced in New York. There were some people who, who took uh, umbrage at that. Fuck them. And so all, although Howard Kissel was just a standard bearer for me, there were some people who took some pretty heavy hits at me. I was pretty depressed, and it closed. And I came home, and I there were answer machines in those days, yeah. and I turned on my answer machine, and it, it was the um, the press agent saying that I'd been nominated for a drama desk with Colm Wilkinson, R- Robert Lindsay, and <laughs> Mandy Patinkin, and I thought he was putting me on, and I said, "You son of a." <laughs> Because you could talk back to answer machines, you know. <laughs> and I go downstairs and I pick up the paper, and there it is. You know, Amazing. And then, of course, a year later, I would be in Les Mis. Yeah. With, now, <laughs> yes. I was going to say, yeah. you and Kevin both share Les Mis history. Kevin was in I Les Mis. There are so many stories about you, Ed. Oh. And when I joined Les Mis, there would have to be, like, wouldn't there? I mean, just legendary. I did it <laughs> 10 years ago. But and and was, really quickly, Ed, you hold a record. Is that right? You've played Tenardier more than any other. No, that's not true. That is not I, I true. like that story, and I wish it was true. It was true for a long time. I did. Ray Walston I, played Tenardier more than anybody. <laughs> that's where the record goes. I, I did it seventeen hundred times. It, it's such a once in a lifetime opportunity. You, in, as an actor, you're never put in the position of saying, "To take my picture down, stop giving me this money." <laughs> you're just never put in that position, and it's hard. Yeah. I was in therapy the whole last year. I, I was in Les Mis trying to get up the courage to go. And when I left, I actually left it for a job that was like three weeks. Right, because in those mm. days, Les Mis, were, they were all chorus contracts, yes. except for Valjean and Javert yes, and yes, Fantine. Yes. Everyone else, all, yes. oh, I did they not changed know that. it when they did the reverse row. Because I remember when I did, the fir- I did the third national tour, which was the original, but those are the only principal contracts. Marius, so, Cosette, Epony, Tenardier, Madame T., all and Fontaine was a, was not Fontaine a, was a principal was con- principal contract. Fontaine had to dress up as a boy and yet was a bullet boy. Yeah. and be yeah. on the barricade. That's right. After she died, I mean, can you imagine? This, I went. Through, I, I went through a rough patch <laughs> during during the Les Mis days. Yeah. I think I think that's pretty common knowledge. It was the 1980s, mm-hmm. and I waded into some dangerous water and got swept away. And that's the reason I wrote the book. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. it's not... We've ta- you've you know, talked yeah. about it publicly. Yeah, yeah. I, it, because I thought... I had had a wide swath of career at that point. I thought I knew who I was. And then, whew, no, you have no idea who you are. And little did I know I would be able to put my life back together. Nobody thought I would be able to. And now I've had... A, a much broader career since Les Mis than that was uh, 1991, January of 91. I, I left, you know, that's a long time, yeah. yeah. And a lot has happened, and a lot of Broadway shows have happened, and a lot of musicals have and plays have been written by me since then. Yeah. You really can.
can screw your life to the wall. You really can drive the car right off the cliff and somehow survive. And, and I thought, if, if I write this book and somebody gets that message from it, that will be a good thing. And um, I can't tell you how many people have written to me or called me or stopped me in the street yeah. to tell me that my doctor started keeping my book in his doctor's office for people to read. He said, I, I've had like three or four people get sober from reading, starting to read your book in, in, in my waiting room and then taking it home with them. How long was the the dark period, if we call it that, until you know the sunlight came around again? All, all in all, it was three years. Okay. I mean, the really, really bad part was the last year mm. of those three. Uh, in, in the beginning, it was just being excessive and a lot of people were being excessive in the 1980s that's it was so common that people would look the other way you know there were whole broadway shows that were drug addicted yeah. entire ensembles that were drug addicted and we had some drugs and alcohol in the show with me it wasn't they weren't in the condition i was in but it was every it was ubiquitous mm -hmm. and um Things are different now. Yeah. People don't tolerate that stuff now. It's a different time, you know. Yeah, and thankfully so. Yeah. I I don't know how I survived it. You know, it was that last year was really really harsh. And what's what is the name of your book for our listeners? It's called Secrets of a Life on Stage. Dot 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 and off. It's available through Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, I mean, it's 40 years of theater history with a great big mess right in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> the, your career is just so amazing. And I'm still looking at all these posters here. I mean, uh, The Iceman Cometh with Kevin Spacey. Yeah, so you did some plays. Oh, you did play, yeah, you do plays. Come on. Just, to, just to, as much to, as you to, do. To, to get to do something like that, you know, I... It, it, it was Jay Bender. He uh, he saw me. He saw me play Ozzy in the Scarlet Pimpernel, and he said to my agent, "I'm going to do something for him." And I thought, "What does he mean by that?" And I was doing Mary Zimmerman's production of Midsummer Night's Dream, playing uh, Bottom mm. at the Huntington in Boston. And the phone rings, and my agent says, "Jay has submitted you for Iceman." I thought, "Yeah, right." You know, and he said, "No, he he wants to put you on on tape, but he wants you to come in." I'm like. I, I'm not coming in from Boston to New York to be put on tape. And my agent said, no, you are. And I went in, and I got there, and it was just me and Jay. And I was like, what the hell? And he taped it, and then he directed me and said, no, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this. And uh, I go back to Boston, and the director was in California, and they sent him the tape. And the next day, the phone rings, and I'm in Iceman Cometh with Kevin Spacey. That's crazy. Yeah. What is, it was just crazy. You know? I mean... And, you know, then I'd cross the line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then more came. Yeah. What's it like being in a rehearsal room with somebody like Kevin Spacey and with somebody like Howard Davies directing? Uh, Howard Davies was so brilliant. You know, by the way, I didn't really connect with Howard Davies. So I think... If I had actually been in the room with him, he probably wouldn't have picked me. <laughs> I think Interesting. it was because he met me on tape. Yeah, uh, but he was so smart 
that he had an idea for every beat of a five and a half hour play. And if he had an idea that was different from your idea, you should just do his idea because <laughs> it's going to be better. And you just knew it, you know, and it was it's so brilliant. Uh, and to be in the room with Kevin Spacey, I mean, he wasn't as famous then as he is now, but he was very famous. I mean, he invited his friend Bill Clinton, who was the sitting president, to mm -hmm. come, and he did, and we all met him. I have a picture of me with him. Oh, oh right up there on the top. You oh, know? my yeah. gosh. Oh yeah. oh, yeah, up there. Huh. Yeah. Uh, and... Huh. Oh, that, this was wonderful. You know, that play was so long that we stopped going to our dressing room. You would come off the stage and just fall on the floor. You didn't have even the energy to go to your dressing room. So I came off the stage one day and just fell on the floor. And, you know, and you're dressed as a bum. What difference does it make? And next to me is Paul Giamatti, who just <laughs> fell on the floor. And we're lying there, and they announce intermission. And we don't get up. We're too tired. And suddenly the door opens, and it's Bill Clinton in the Secret Service <laughs> looking for a bathroom. So we both jump up, <laughs> start trying to get us, and the Secret Service is pissing themselves. And Bill Clinton goes, well, hell, I think I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Now, one of my oh, favorite God. plays is The Best Man. Oh, I think it's such a great play. And the cast you got to work with, Charles oh, my God. Durning, First of all, my, my dear friend, Ethan McSweeney, who was practically a kid at the time, had just done, I don't know, two or three readings with me and just basically asked me to do the play. Uh, and to Christine Ebersol and I met and just became fast friends. It was, she's like my long-lost sister, and oh. we still are. I, I, she was in Boston with um, Warpate recently, wanted to talk to somebody about something, and she called me in the middle of the night. And then she called me in the middle of the night the next day. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love friends. her. But I in fact, it got to be a problem. She and I developed this kooky thing. You know, Christine can have a very high voice if she feels like it. Mm -hmm. And she she would we'd be in the wings, we're supposed to be quiet, and she'd say something like, What are you gonna have for dinner? And I'd be like, I don't know, Christine, what are you gonna have for dinner? And we would start laughing and we couldn't stop. And Chris Noth would come off and go, Fuck. God's sake, you two. It's quiet out there. You have to stop this. Oh my God. And five minutes later, we'd start doing it, and it was so wrong. This was just wrong, you know? Oh but, God. you know, when something is happening between you and another person, sometimes it overrides. Now, did you understudy Charles Gurney? This was one of the most amazing things I've ever experienced. We went into rehearsal. Oh, they, oh, the offer came, and they said, oh, yeah, and you're standing by for Charles Durning. I said, I don't want to stand by for Charles Durning. I just want to do my part. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the senator, Senator Carlin, was a nice part. It was a little turn. You come in, you have a great scene, you storm out, you slam the door, and, you know, yeah. and then you go back to your dressing room. No. They said, whoever does this is going to stand by for Charles. And I'm like, I don't want to stand by for Charles. They're like, well, it's either that or the highway. So like, okay, standing by for Charles. So and, and very quickly, for our listeners who don't know the play, I mean, Charles Durning, it really is the star role it, in the play. Absolutely. Really and it's a monumental oratory, this yeah. piece, for him. It's he you plant your feet and hold forth pages at a time. So we're getting ready to go into rehearsal. And we find out Charles is, has just had an operation, and he's just gotten out of the hospital, and he's not coming to rehearsal. So we start rehearsing, and I'm with all these fantastic people, and um, 
Read off some of the names Spalding there. Spalding Gray, Chris Noth, Elizabeth Ashley, Christine Embersall, Michael Lerner, Mark Blum. <laughs> yes. Jeez. Jordan Lage. Jordan I mean, Lage. fantastic people. Jonathan and, Hadari. Yeah, this is Jonathan a- Hadari. And they say, you're going to be doing both Senator Carlin and President Hochstetter. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake. Well, now... I had already started prepping, so by the time we're actually in rehearsal, I'm off book with with Hofstetter. So I would do my part, and then sometimes the president would come in in the very next scene. I would just turn around and be the president, and then I'd go back to, and it was like that. Well, Charles was very ill, and he didn't come for like two weeks. So that's a lot of rehearsal. It was an amazing once-in-a-lifetime situation. And eventually, he did show up, and I saw him sitting at a table having some coffee, so I went over to say hello to him. And he looked up at me, and when I looked into his eyes, I said, oh, my God, I am totally going on. And we started the play, and... I don't. I'm going to just tell the story. You can decide whether this is okay or not. I, Charles is a was a fantastic man, and a war hero, and a wonderful, genuine person. And I had some amazing one-on-one interactions with him. Well, I'm going to tell you. One night, I saw him down in the basement. It was very hard for him to walk, and I thought, "What the hell are you doing in the in the basement? How did you get down here?" And we're having a one-on-one conversation. We're the only people down there. So I don't know how it happened, but I started telling him about my recovery from drugs. And I got, I waded into a little bit, and I thought, I don't know how he's going to feel about it. Why did you do that? And I finished my little story, and he looks up at me and he goes, well, I went crazy. People thought I was an alcoholic, but I wasn't. I just went crazy. It's because of the war. And I thought, holy crap. That's an amazing interaction. So his brother died, and he went to the funeral, and he the, the plane didn't take off when it was supposed to, and he didn't make it back, but nobody knew. So I'm on my way to the theater, and I put my hand on the door handle to come in to do my show, and they push the door, and you're on. So I didn't even have time to prepare. And they didn't have clothes for me because Charles and I are not the same shape. So I had to send somebody to my house to get my tux. I said, okay, I can wear my senator suit for the rest of it, and then I'll change into my own tux when the time comes. And um, I, I come into the dressing room, and a lot had changed since I had done it because Charles was was having mobility problems, so a lot of the staging had changed. So Ethan came in and started trying to catch me up. I said, Ethan, love you, but you got to go outside. I have to collect myself. So <laughs> the the play starts, and you know there was always a giant entrance applause for Charles, and I, I make my entrance, and there's dead silence and I start the scene and the first scene was that gigantic holding forth with oratory and I had worked it every day because I knew it was going to happen and I planted my feet and I let it go and I reached the end of it and I stormed off and I slammed the door and there was exit applause (laughs) 
Silence to exit applause. Oh my god! It was and oh, during during the curtain call, he gets the last bow. So here I am in a play on Broadway with all these stars, and I'm taking the final bow, and they all gave it to me, mm-hmm. and there was a standing ovation. It was just the most extraordinary night, and we are so so grateful. Thank so thank you. you for sharing your gifts. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. All right, till next time. Bye. Everybody. We'll wait for part two. I know. I can't wait. <laughs> Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.